Welcome to the KRS Molecular Minute podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan, and I am the chairman of the KRS Precision Oncology Alliance, a research, large research collaborative network focused on precision oncology with the hope that we leverage big data to improve on the outcomes of all patients with cancer. The Keras Molecular Minute podcast is dedicated to precision oncology and clinical advances in various cancers. And I couldn't be happier today to host Dr. Virginia Kaklamani from the University of Texas in San Antonio. And we are in October, the Breast Cancer Awareness Month. You have already listened to Laura Holmes Haddad, a patient advocate and a book author who is also a breast cancer survivor, and I'm really delighted to have a physician perspective into the advances of treating breast cancer. I'm going to talk to Virginia about the changes in how we approach metastatic breast cancer as well as how we approach early stage breast cancer with the idea of understanding how these changes are impacting patient care and what type of diagnostics and sequencing are actually needed to assure that we detect the proper target to treat the patient. It goes without saying that treating the patient requires knowing the patient and knowing the tumor. And both are critically important in tailoring the treatment for patients. And without further ado, Dr. Virginia Kaklamani on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure to host Dr. Virginia Kaklamani on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I have known Dr. Kaklamani for a couple of decades. We actually trained together at Northwestern University, so it's always a pleasure to have her as my guest. Virginia, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule. I see you're in the middle of clinic, so we really appreciate that. Just for listeners who don't know you, a little bit about you and where you are, what you do, and how do you spend your day in terms of clinical care, research, and how do you divide your day? Sure. Uh, Chadi, you forgot to mention that you were my senior fellow. Oh, boy. We just uh, trained together. But you were the smarter one. I don't know about that. Um, so I'm a medical oncologist. I focus uh, on breast cancer and cancer genetics. I work at the University of Texas in San Antonio, the Health Sand Center. And, and I, I do a lot of things. I do uh, patient care around 60% of the time. Then I do some research and some teaching as well. So... Uh, that all keeps me uh, motivated because uh, we get to have our medical students, they keep asking questions of why have you not cured breast cancer yet, as well as patients who tend to ask the same question. You know, it's interesting. I always like to ask this question, Virginia, because, you know, a lot of times, like, you, you know, you start your fellowship maybe undifferentiated, not really knowing what you're going to do, and then you end up having an interest in one way or another. What, what got you interested in breast cancer that you spent the past two decades doing breast cancer research? For whatever reason, starting from when I remember around 16 years old, I wanted to do breast cancer. I think I was fascinated by, by the disease in the sense that it had great research, but also great clinical care at the same time. So, so that's what uh, led me to it. It was, you know, the relationships that you have with patients that are long lasting. You see these patients for five, 10 years, as well as the fact that uh, there's so much endocrinology into breast cancer, so much genetics and genomics into breast cancer. So all of that just fascinated me. So I started my fellowship knowing I was going to subspecialize in breast cancer. Oh, that's great. And the nice thing about 
someone like yourself who has done this for so long in breast cancer is yes, you see this evolution, I think, about how breast cancer treatment, diagnosis, management has changed. So I think it gives you this insight into the changes. For someone like myself, who is not a breast cancer specialist, I look on the outside and I see a lot of changes happening. But from you, tell us what have you seen? Maybe we'll start with metastatic disease, metastatic breast cancer. What would you say the bullet points into the changes that have occurred over the past five to six years? Well, for metastatic breast cancer, starting with ER-positive breast cancer, we now have CDK4-6 inhibitors. They've really revolutionized how we treat metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. We really don't need to give chemotherapy in first, second, usually third-line setting, which is something we used to do uh, quite frequently. Then when you look at HER2-positive breast cancer, we've had trastuzumab out since 1998. But now this year alone, three new agents were approved for metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer which is, again, unheard of, three new drugs in, in, in a span of, of three months. Uh, and then for triple negative, we started having immunotherapeutics. Now we're looking at AKT inhibitors. There's going to be a large trial presented at SABCS on AKT inhibitors. If that's positive, we're going to have another targeted therapy for, for triple negative breast cancer. So it's not just the chemotherapy that's also progressing. We have antibody drug conjugates approved for both her 2 positive and triple negative breast cancer but we also now have a lot of more targeted therapy there for all types of breast cancers. And, and just listening to you, it's, I mean, there are all of these therapies. So when you're faced with a patient with metastatic disease, how do you decide which treatment you will actually start with? Are, are, there, are there any specific cancer-related characteristics, patient-related characteristics? It seems like a little bit too many treatment options. So how do you narrow it down for a particular patient? So when you think of ER-positive breast cancer, you're thinking CDK4-6 inhibitors in the first-line setting. That's pretty typical. Sometimes people might look at ESR1 mutations, so they're going to look at genomic panels to see if a patient has an ESR1 mutation to decide on what endocrine partner to give with a CDK4-6 inhibitor. Uh, so that's pretty n nice and standard easy, I should say. Uh, for triple negative breast cancer, we have to look at pdl one status now. Uh, is a patient pd one positive or not? If they are, then we start with immunotherapy, either atezolizumab, which has been approved, or pembrolizumab, which should probably soon be approved for breast cancer. And then for HER2-positive disease, in many cases, it depends on what a patient has had in the past. Is this de novo metastatic disease, which around 20 or so percent of the HER2-positives will be, or is it progression from the adjuvant setting? And then what have they been exposed to in the adjuvant setting? We have trastuzumab, pertuzumab, TDM1, DS8201, ducatinib, neratinib. Kind of gives you a headache when you start thinking of all these agents. But I always consider HER2-positive breast cancer as kind of a, a marathon. There's all these drugs, and you're going to use them at some point. You just want to make sure that you focus a lot on patient toxicity so that you can get them through all of these drugs. And when you say you check for ESR1 or PD1 or PDL1, and for listeners, how do you check for those? Like, what do you actually, what, what testing do you actually do for those? So, for ESR1 mutations, you're going to uh, look at a genomic panel such as CARES. You can look at uh, Foundation One, whatever, whatever the, the physician's comfortable doing, and that will give you an array of mutations, including ESR1 mutations. For PDL1, there's a specific test for atezolizumab and pembrolizumab based on clinical trials. So those are immunohistochemistry uh, tests that we do. Obviously, you can look at MMR status, but for breast cancer, the the chance of that is is extremely low. So 
Typically for triple negative, most physicians are going to do a genomic assay just because our, our treatment options are relatively limited. But quite frankly, in many of the cases, we get disappointed with not being able to identify some sort of actionable mutation. And in metastatic disease, like if you, you know, for in, in breast cancer research, when it comes to metastatic disease, what would be the top two or three questions that you really want answered? And to the extent you can share with us, what should we expect for metastatic disease in the San Antonio conference coming up in a couple of months? And resistance, right? Uh, as in most diseases, how, why do we get resistance to CDK4-6 inhibitors, PI3 kinase inhibitors, immunotherapeutics, and how do we overcome this resistance? At SABCS this year, we're going to look at, for metastatic disease, we're going to look at AKT inhibition and whether that is uh, advantageous. We're going to look at some long-term data on uh, immunotherapeutics as far as overall survival. We'll see what that, whether that pans out or not. I think those are kind of the, the highlights for metastatic, and we're going to have some adjuvant data as well. So speaking of adjuvant data, I mean, I think that you mentioned actually in terms of the sequencing, by the way, you talked about that you have to look for these mutations using sequencing data in metastatic disease. Are you seeing there is more migration where physicians and patients are requiring sequencing earlier on in the course of the disease in, in the adjuvant setting in early stage, or is that not the case yet? Not yet, but we're getting there. We're just uh, close to opening a, a really nice clinical trial where we're looking at circulating tumor DNA and, and uh, whether they're actionable mutations, and it's going to be in triple negative breast cancers, and then based on whether there are, patients will be receiving specific targeted therapies. So, you know, if they have uh, mutations that uh, make their tumors BRCA-like, then maybe giving a PARP inhibitor to try to prevent metastatic disease. If they have mutations that are in the AKT pathway, maybe giving them an, an AKT inhibitor. So all of these things are coming. We saw last year at SABCS a, a few very nice clinical trials, including uh, the plasma match trial. This was kind of a proof of concept trial, and it was basically taking, now this was in metastatic patients, but taking uh, circulating tumor DNA, sequencing it, finding a pathway, and then treating the cancer uh, with that specific pathway drug. And, and even though the results were not amazing, it was just the beginning of being able to use sequencing in real time to treat patients. There was also another proof of concept trial looking at circulating tumor DNA in the adjuvant setting, showing that patients that have either circulating tumor DNA or circulating tumor cells have a worse prognosis, which we kind of expected. But then obviously from that trial, the next trial is to look at the molecular changes in that DNA and then design treatments specific to the patient's cancer. So we're doing a lot more of that. I think the results are still not there, mostly because we don't have the, the great drugs that we need to have, but we're getting there. And what are you doing differently, you would say, over the past, what have you done differently over the past five to six years in the adjuvant setting? We talked about metastatic disease, and I think you nicely divided these patients into different phenotypes. How about in adjuvant uh, setting? So in the adjuvant setting, uh, more than five years, we've had Oncotype DX and other molecular assays where we can prevent uh, patients from receiving chemotherapy. We started using that actually Northwestern. We were the first that uh, sent uh, uh, testing for Oncotype. I was reminded recently. And that was before we even had uh, predictive data, but subsequently we got predictive data. Now we genotype pretty much every patient 
with Oncotype DX, and then based on that, we decide whether to give chemotherapy or not in the adjuvant setting. That's for the ER-positive patients. For the triple negative patients, we've had now some data on carboplatin in the new adjuvant setting. We've had some data with, uh, with pembrolizumab as well, which is pretty uh, interesting. And, and, and what we've learned with both triple negative breast cancer and HER2 positive breast cancer is how important the neoadjuvant setting is. If you have a tumor that is stage two or more, treating it neoadjuvantly will allow you to potentially give different adjuvant therapy and improve outcomes. So for example, for HER2 positive disease, if you have residual disease after neoadjuvant chemotherapy, based on the Catherine trial, you can give TDM1 adjuvantly instead of trastuzumab and bertuzumab, and again, improve outcomes. For triple negative breast cancer, you can give capecitabine adjuvantly, and again, improve outcomes. So, so this has been, again, this has been the past three, four years where we've had this data to, to help us tailor adjuvant therapy based on how a, patient, a patient's tumor responded to the new adjuvant therapy. So would you say now, take 100 women with breast cancer that come in are you using neoadjuvant therapy across the board for the majority of women right now, regardless of the stage, or is it still uh, neoadjuvant only in a select few? It's neoadjuvant in a select group. So you're going to have patients with uh, triple negative breast cancer and HER2 positive breast cancer, stage two or more. Those are typically going to receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Everybody else will probably receive adjuvant therapy. Now, one of the changes that has happened with COVID is we've started using more neoadjuvant endocrine therapy. You know, in, in Texas, in April and May, all of the operating rooms were closed. And so for elective surgeries and, you know, early, early stage breast cancer surgery was considered elective. So we started giving these slower growing air positive tumor patients endocrine therapy. I actually gave CDK4-6 inhibitors as well to some select patients uh, just to get them through three or four months of, you know, hopefully COVID subsiding, which now it has. And patients didn't want to go and get operated either. They were concerned too. So that gave us a three or four month window where they were getting active treatment uh, and we were delaying surgery. And I think, so you, you, you nicely said how the sequencing obviously is changing maybe for early stage compared to metastatic disease. What are the top two or three questions, similar question to metastatic in the adjuvant setting that the breast cancer world is really eager to resolve over the, past, over the next couple of years? So we're going to have some data presented on CDK4-6 inhibitors in the adjuvant setting. At least one of the trials is a positive trial. So that really will change quite a bit how we treat ER-positive disease, high-risk ER-positive disease. I think the, the, the major issue with the adjuvant setting is, is who needs more and who needs less treatment. We've kind of answered part of that question in her positive disease, where we have patients with stage one disease where they might need less chemotherapy uh, and less anti-HER2 therapy. With triple negative breast cancer, we're not there yet. We know that these cancers typically won't uh, go to the lymph nodes, but they can still metastasize and be pretty aggressive. So that's where maybe circulating tumor DNA and circulating tumor cells will help us uh, identify the patients that are at high risk and then offer those patients more treatment. And we're talking about aggressive therapy and toxic therapy, which is chemotherapy for these patients. So I think the, the main question to answer in the adjuvant setting is, is risk. Who is at risk of metastasizing? And, and then is there something to give them to decrease that risk? You know, I, I was trying, as I was listening to you, I remember 
many years back, I mean, I recall dose-dense adjuvant therapy was the hot thing. Is that still even being used? I know that may sound like a very silly question, but it got me curious. Are you still using dose-dense? That's completely out of the window now. We are. No, we are. Uh, there was nice data. First of all, it's easier for patients. They finish in four months instead of six months. Uh, but secondly, the outcomes are still a little bit better and, and toxicities are a little bit better. So for all of these reasons, I personally still use it. Most of us still do. Oh, okay. We're going to air this episode during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is, you know, there's a lot of heightened awareness for women uh, with breast cancer. I mean, obviously, there's a very small subset of men who also get breast cancer, so uh, we don't want to forget that. But um, if, if a patient is listening, what do you want patients to know about the progress that's ongoing with breast cancer? What, what, what message would you give patients? We have more and more survivors out there. Uh, we have 268,000 women that are projected to be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, and 40,000 are going to die of the disease. But that means that there's 228,000 survivors, right? And these survivors are accumulating year after year after year. So we're curing more and more breast cancer. And if we catch the disease early and if we get a good therapy, chances are we're going to be cured of the disease. I think women need to also be aware of the fact that they have to be their own best advocate. They need to be participating actively in their care. They need to know what they're getting. They need to know why they're getting it and asking the right questions. Be very aware of clinical trials. You know, it, it, it used to be that we were scared to talk to patients about clinical trials, right? They would come in and say, oh, my God, that's a dirty word. And, and, and now we have data that, women that men and women that participate in clinical trials live longer. So this is very powerful, and, and, and patients need to know that, and they need to know that they, they should consider themselves lucky if they can participate in a clinical trial, not just for the progress of cancer, but for their outcomes as well. You know, we hear also the word precision medicine and precision oncology a lot, and I think to you as a breast cancer researcher, what does that mean, and how do you think patients should view precision oncology and precision medicine? tailoring the treatment to their specific cancer, right? So I just talked about clinical trials. Those are trials that have happened in other women, and we have outcomes from, for those women, but we don't have outcomes for that specific woman's breast cancer that I'm seeing today. So precision oncology to me is really taking information about their tumor, taking their genomic molecular information and using that to try to treat their cancer uniquely. And, and we're getting there. We, and we have now several uh, targeted agents. We have PI3 kinase inhibitors, uh, where we only use them for women with PIK3CA mutations. We have the uh, immunotherapeutics with uh, patients uh, that are PDL1 positive. BRCA positive patients are eligible for PARP inhibitors. And then so many clinical trials out there that the only way that woman, women will be eligible are if they get some sort of genomic testing that shows a specific mutation that makes them eligible for that trial. And that, you know, goes to your earlier point in terms of sequencing to be able to understand the tumor a little bit better. Does the method of sequencing matter? I know there are, I mean, I think there are certain sometimes methods that might miss particular gene fusions and so forth. Any thoughts on that as you look at breast cancer? I mean, how important it is to detect the target that you are actually looking for? I think it's important. I think you need to do a comprehensive analysis on whatever gene you're looking at to see the change. You also have to understand whether that change means something. Does it alter the protein? Does it alter the, you know, the expression of the protein? Or is it just a silent change? So all of these things are important 
I'm glad that the, the, the reports that you guys sent make it a little bit easier for us to understand. But I think it's extremely important. I think a comprehensive testing is very important for us to be able to get all the information that we need. Well, Virginia, you've, uh, we've taken you away from uh, your clinic. Hopefully, you'll get a little bit of a break. I, I really appreciate your time, but I want to make sure you get the last word. So anything I should have asked you that I forgot, any other things that you would like to share with uh, listeners? And I'll let, I'll let you go back to your clinic. I think the only other thing we didn't talk about was genetic testing. So know your family history. Uh, make sure that if you're eligible for genetic testing, you get that testing done. We have FARP inhibitors that are, um, that are available for women with BRCA mutations. If we don't do genetic testing, we won't identify those women, won't know that they're eligible for PARP inhibitors. And, and for women that are walking out there that don't have breast cancer, knowing their family history may help them identify that they're at high risk of getting breast cancer and prevent the cancer altogether. I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to having you again on the Keras Molecular Minute. Thank you, Charlie. That was great. Thanks everyone for listening. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the fact that you took some time of your busy schedule to tune in and listen to the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. Special thank you to Dr. Virginia Kaklamani, who was our guest today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation that we had about advances in breast cancer. And again, in celebration of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, really the advances, the changes that we have witnessed in how we understand breast cancer, how we treat breast cancer, uh, are just fascinating. And I hope that you share with me the enthusiasm that we all have here at Keras about how we are going to transform the way we care for cancers. Thank you for listening. And always, let me know how we're doing on this podcast. You can always log into iTunes. You can go into Spotify, any podcast outlet. You can give us the number of stars you believe we deserve and also write a brief review. You know, writing a brief review always helps in referring additional colleagues to listen to this podcast. You can always email me directly to cnabhan at karisls.com. Until next time, take care.